Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Neon, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history behind it. I'm Jem Daduchu. This time round, we're talking about Marvel's Thor. All three of his films, really, plus all the other stuff that he's turned up in. And some surprising twists are going to turn up here. We are going to be talking about dates and time, which is a little bit weird. We're going to be talking about Viking mythology. I'm also going to be pointing out that there was no such thing as the Vikings. And I'm going to be telling you about if you like a defamation of character that Thor could perhaps start suing Marvel and Disney over. All this, and so much more, in this episode of Neon. You got here, Brenda. This guy has been creeping around since at least 1700. Not possible. You've been here for three and a half hours. How many different ways do you want me to tell the same story? Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot? As your leader, I encourage you from time to time, but always in a respectful manner, to question my logic. Now to run a computer check on this tape and the professor. Dodge this. The tracks go off in this direction. Before we start, it's always worth pointing out you can continue the Neon Revolution with us here. There's a few ways you can do it. If you want to make a suggestion, we've had some really interesting ones pop up. We are at Neon Podcast on Twitter, Neon Podcast also on Facebook and Instagram. Neonpodcast.com is the website. You get the idea. There are lots of ways to go out and reach us. If you want to talk to me, I'm at Jem Daduchu on Twitter as well. Funnily enough, that one was available. And yes, you can support us as well. If you like this, and the more people we can get to do this, the more we can turn this into a day job, basically, you can go on to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash neon podcast. Right, let's get to it. So, dates and time and things like that. Well, the thing that's always sort of surprised me is there can be no doubt, if you're looking at the culture of Europe, Christianity won. But if you rewind the clock to, let's say, 500 AD, 
the Western Roman Empire has collapsed and there are Christians in Europe then, but there's an awful lot of pagans. And it's worth remembering that Britain became so pagan, Pope Gregory the Great had to send missionaries over to Britain to remind us about Christianity again. This has, by the by, and I'm not going to go into this all now, led to a conversation about, well, exactly how Christian was Britain to begin with. Just because the Roman Empire dictated it did not mean everybody suddenly put down their local idols and just went, okay, fine, we, we now absolutely follow, to the letter of the law, the Bible. That's another conversation. But yes, there was this great resurgence and interest of pagan world and rituals and stories and mythology. And it is worth pointing out at this moment that the Anglo-Saxons came from Northern Europe, which is the centre of similar influence of the Scandinavians as well. So there were slightly different names and indeed spellings and imagery but, in essence, the Anglo-Saxons, well, they had Woden, and the Norse, they had Odin, but it was exactly the same god. You, you could, if you want to do a comparison, it's like the Romans and Greeks. They had exactly the same pantheon of gods, slightly different names, you know, Mars or Ares. Either way, they're the god of war. So, there is this looking north... Again, to give you an overview of, of British history in its like first thousand years, is you have this invasion from the Roman Empire. And therefore, there can be no doubt that Britain, and yes, I know, you know, how much of Scotland was involved. Okay, fine. But you get the idea. Wales was definitely part of the Roman Empire. So yes, at that point, the country was looking to southern Europe in terms of its influence. It was looking south in terms of its culture and its trade networks and its partnerships, okay? Then we've got the collapse of the Roman Empire and we've got the beginnings of the Anglo-Saxon era. They originally came over as mercenaries and they started taking over the area. But these people, the Angles, Jutes and Saxons, came from modern-day Netherlands, northern Germany, Denmark, that kind of thing. Uh, the Jutes come from Jutland. I always wondered where Jutland was. There's the Battle of Jutland, and there's even a new Jutland and a New Zealand, uh, both very, very far away indeed. And uh, it turns out uh, Jutland's part of Denmark. Anyway, so now we have the culture of Britain being very much influenced looking north. That's where they're trade network and politics and culture comes from and it that lasts for a very long time and if you like looking at 1066 from a slightly different way Britain at that time has been particularly England has been ruled by not only the Anglo-Saxons but also by Norse peoples as well and although by now they're Christianized their their culture and attitudes and their warrior castes and things like that would have been very familiar to a, a, a pagan Viking. So again, up until 1066, we've got this looking north. And then with William the Conqueror, the capture of Britain and, and sort of not so much bringing it back into the fold of the Catholic Church, it was already there. But again, the influence is now looking south again. And we get the feudalization, which is more familiar to southern Europe than northern Europe. So, yeah, there we go. Little bit of medieval politics and culture there. A thousand years summarized in about two minutes. I thank you very much. So... As I said, Christianity ultimately won. They even managed to Christianize these very pagan Scandinavians. 
So the thing that stumps me is there is still this colossal echo of paganism in our everyday lives. Well, really, Jem? Well, yeah. Let's have a look at how we name the days of the week. We do these names all the time, okay? Let's start, shall we, with Saturday, okay? That is a reference to the planet Saturn, okay? Then we've got Sunday. Doesn't take genius to work out that's the sun. Then we've got Monday or Moon Day. So that's a reference to the moon. And indeed, it's worth mentioning that in, in France, of course, there's Lundi. And that's again mentioned to the lunar moon. OK, so those three are planets or indeed pagan gods as they were. But then we've got the rest of the days of the week. And they are all Anglo-Saxon slash Scandinavian gods. We've got Tuesday, Tua was a goddess. We got Wednesday, Woden's Day. So that's the big boy himself. That's Odin's Day. Then we've got Thursday, Thor's Day. You can see where this is going. And then we got Friday, Freya is another goddess. So why Disney keeps releasing the Thor movies on Friday, it's like, come on, it's it's an open goal of marketing. Do it on a Thursday. Remind everybody that every seven days we are promoting Thor. And this blows my mind because we haven't been worshipping Thor in this country for more than a thousand years. Why isn't there? I mean, let's face it, Sunday is the church day. It's the holy day of the week. So why aren't we calling it Christ Day or Jesus Day? I know that sounds really weird and that shows you how inured we are to this pagan naming process. The months are also a bit weird as well. They're largely Roman. Uh, they had 10 months of the year, which is why December, December, 10th month is our 12th month. We, we added a few. We, we worked things out over the uh, millennia, as it were. So Christianity didn't get into the naming protocols and, and seeing that we get something like, look, I, I don't, this isn't specifically like a Christmas episode. And, you know, if you're listening to this in July, this might sound a little bit weird. So I'm not going to go into the whole Christmas thing, but it is worth reminding you that the Bible, when people start using the Bible as a history book, they're using it wrong. That's not its purpose. And it is worth pointing out and reminding you something you already know. There are no dates in the Bible. We have no way of knowing when Jesus was born. But what we do know is that, particularly in Northern Europe, the winter solstice, the sort of midway point in the sometimes incredibly bleak winter period, was incredibly important. And that pagan celebration was called Yule. We Again, we still have this echo, you know, Yule time greetings. A Yule log is in Britain, a sort of chocolate cake type thing. And indeed, there was this burning of a log in the Middle Ages. The idea was that you would chop down this log and you would then set fire to it. And as long as it burnt, that's as much time off you got. So people would definitely try and buy, uh, get chopped down the biggest tree that they could find. And that's now being turned into a rather delicious chocolatey treat at Christmas time. And, you know, Christmas, Christ mass, that makes complete sense. But they've rebranded an earlier pagan festival and made it a Christian thing. Why didn't they do that with the days of the weeks and the months of the year? It's really weird that. Now, the only thing they win on is the dating system. 
you know, let, let me put it to you this way. Look, pause for a moment. If you already know the answer to this, well done, you. Get a neon point on this one. But how did the Romans number their years? It's worth pointing out that you get someone like Julius Caesar, so already into the, you know, in, in very important period of the Roman Republic. But that's, you know, give or take 50 BC. So, um... They didn't know Jesus was coming in 50 BC. You know, we mean that as, you know, before Christ. So how did they name it? And the answer was, particularly in the imperial age, is it was the amount of years into this person's reign. And what historians have done is they've gone back and sort of like added the Diocletians with the Tiberiuses, etc., and then overlapped it over the, the Christian numbering process and therefore they can say that ex-emperor sort of started in let's say 120 AD and died in 136 AD that kind of thing but that would have mean been meaningless to an actual Roman they would have just turned around and said you know we're in the fourth year of Hadrian's rule and that would have meant the same thing across the entire empire so yeah I told you we would fall into time and dates and things like that so the Christians, if you like, won on, I guess, the big one, the years, the, the numbering system of the years. But in all other aspects, they've allowed these echoes of a pagan past to continue, which if you consider how seriously the Middle Ages church took its duty in terms of making sure everybody remained Christian, things like heresy being put down by the Inquisition, so on and so forth, crusades, yada, yada, um, then why they didn't change all this stuff? I can't give you an answer to that, but it seems a very strange oversight. It's one of the weirdest bits, if you like, of Western culture that exists to this day. Now, let's get back to Thor and also why there's no such thing as Vikings. So Viking is basically the Scandinavian term for wanderer. The guys who got onto longships and sailed off to get stuff they called them Vikings, but when they came back again, they would have been someone like Ulrich the farmer or, or you know, uh, Bjorn the fisherman. So they didn't, you know, it wasn't a culture, if you like. So this is why you have to be careful. You have to talk about sort of like the Scandinavian culture or those sorts of ideas. Uh, you certainly don't put Finland in there as well. They get very sniffy about that. They're a very different culture and a completely different language as well. Again, you know, I won't go there. But yes, the, these people, just because they're pagan, this does show you the bias that we have in, in the modern world. They were largely an illiterate society and they were pagan. And when you say those two phrases together, illiteracy and paganism, we therefore tend to think, oh, barbarian. But they're not. Absolutely not. It's just they didn't use writing in the same way that the Christian southern Mediterranean areas did. There was writing, there were runes, for example, but they were very much associated with moments of power. So you might put a rune, for example, on your sword, or you might have a casket of treasures that might have runes on them. They had an entire alphabet, and so they could have sat down and written everything out. Why didn't they? Well, the theory is that well, it just wasn't important to them. It, 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 sort of storing the stuff on paper, I guess, is pretty fragile when you think about it. And therefore, what they did is they would retell stories that 
Uh, you get things like the earliest piece of English literature is Beowulf. It's written in Old English, in Anglo-Saxon. And if you like, reading it is almost missing the point. It was meant to have been told. And, you know, it's referred to as an epic poem. I'll come on to some other ones in a moment. But this is an example of one that, uh, if you like, came from England. And it's it was never meant to be sat... you never meant to sit there and read it in a book. What was meant to happen is... A bard, a travelling storyteller, would appear at a great hall. And the reason why it's so long is it would give that person perhaps days' worth of nutrients. The, the, you know, this is before TV. This is before podcasts and before Netflix and the internet, okay? So, what are you doing tonight, Olaf? Not a lot. <laughs> but... So when a, a minstrel came into town, that was a big deal. Everybody would crowd in and he would be thrown coins or yeah, and certainly be fed and, and watered. And therefore, if you like, it was in the bard's best interest to hang around for as long as possible, telling a good story. And therefore, although it's, I guess, technically poetry because it's now been written down, it's more a song is really what it was all about. But this was part of the epic poetry literary area. I mean, again, literature is probably the wrong word. The, the Vikings loved a story, and all these Viking star sagas, these epic poems, were written down in the Christian age, which leads to a huge debate that is still going on today, right now. Go into a medieval department of a university and ask them this question. You're going to get different, very heated responses, because the, the query is this. This was written down by Scandinavian monks. These are Christian men writing down these epic pagan stories. And they are, I love them. Ever since I was a kid, I love them because unlike, okay, little, a little sidestep here into Jem's world as a child, okay? As you might be aware, the nativity is sometimes referred to as the greatest story ever told because the idea of the Messiah coming down, the idea of God sacrificing his own son for our sins, if you want to get into a theological area, you're not going to get a better story than that. But as a young child, I was watching an animated version of it and I was getting bored and fidgety. And my mother turned to me. My mother is not religious at all, but I think she just was trying to make me understand what Christmas was all about. And she goes, aren't you enjoying the greatest story ever told? And my response was, no, I prefer Star Wars. And do you know what? I, I stand by that statement many decades later. Now I am a proud father myself. I still agree with Little Jem, okay? And this is what I loved about the epic poems, the epic sagas, because they're, it's just about incredibly brave warriors having berserker fits and slaying many of their enemies and jumping onto a boat and sailing across seas and fighting monsters and defying the gods. The amount of times ravens are feasting on the, the bodies of their enemies is just just very frequent motif, okay? But here is where it becomes a debate. Are these monks sitting down, recording the stories that they were told as young children, realising that these are perhaps a, an important memory to be remembered of their culture and race? And are they writing them therefore down as accurately as they can remember them? Or 
were the, and I'm going to use the term Vikings from here on in because you're used to that phrase, or were the Vikings perhaps not quite so bloodthirsty and extra gore and splatter was added by these monks to make them look, if you like, less Christian, more barbaric. You don't really want to be like these guys. Now, there isn't a right answer to that. If you're sitting there going, oh, it's definitely the first one. Or, hey, hey, it's second, second one. Fine, good for you. But the point is, we, we never know in the medieval era, what people were thinking when they were writing stuff down, okay? The, we don't get the behind-the-scenes look, unfortunately. So, both cases are valid, but it does mean if they were altering our perception of what it was like to be uh, a Viking, then it worked spectacularly well, because we all assume that they like nothing more than uh, swigging down some ale and sort of uh, going on an adventure, etc., but going back to the mythology for a moment, and going back to the Thor movies, on a number of occasions they talk about the Nine Realms and the coalescence of the Nine Realms. This is very important in the Thor second Thor movie, which is Thor Dark World. And th they got their, their mythology right. That's exactly what the Vikings and also Anglo-Saxons believed, that there were these nine different realms. And it's interesting what was sort of living in some of these. For example, you get uh, uh, well, uh, Midgard is the realm of the humans, so this planet Earth, all us lot, if you like, and Asgard is where Thor and his daddy are in all the movies, and indeed that was the realm of the gods. It was literally where Odin and Thor lived, and then they would sometimes jump across these, these worlds to other worlds. And then uh, you've got Alfheim, which is where the elves live. They literally use the word elf, okay? And then we got Svartalheim, which is uh, where the dwarves lived. And if you're sitting there going, well, dwarves, elves, you know, this all sounds familiar. This all sounds like Tolkien. Well, we'll do Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit another time for sure. But it does show you how, you know, people talk about elves. Nowadays, we tend to think pointy ears, good with bows and arrows. And that's very much a Lord of the Rings thing, but if you said elf in, let's say, 1900, people would know you're talking about a magical creature. Now, whether they were malevolent or positive, that's a whole other story, but you can see how many of these, these fra phrases ripple, and indeed, the best-selling, the most viewed, biggest grossing Thor movie was the third one, Thor Ragnarok, and it was a very funny movie, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, but most people do know that Ragnarok is, if you like, the apocalypse. It's Armageddon in Scandinavian mythology. And there is kind of a, a Ragnarok in the movie, although it's far more Thor mucking about with the Hulk. Uh, you know, that would have meant nothing to uh, people back in 900 AD in Norway, okay? But the idea of Ragnarok was sort of like an end of all things... But, unlike, if you like, the, you see, if you think about it, the, the Christian, if you want to get deep on Christian theology, in theory, you can't wait till death, because paradise is a lot better than the world here. And if you've been a good Christian, I mean, I guess that's why suicide is, is a no-no in Christianity, because if you really believe in Christianity and you really want to get to the afterlife and really want to sort of spend your time in uh, all of eternity with God and Jesus and all the saints, etc., 
then yeah, you'd want to kill yourself as quickly as possible, wouldn't you? But the thing about uh, the end of days in the book of Revelation is it's very much the end. There is this fight between good and evil, the world is pretty much torn asunder, and then you've got uh, everlasting afterlife. But if you like, everybody's now gone from planet Earth, and actually Ragnarok is very different to that, because it's a huge fight to the end. It does, you know, trigger this sort of like this sort of death cycle, because everything starts again afterwards. It's like the, the, the world is wiped clean, and then it starts again. And it's also really interesting when you get to the Viking idea of the afterlife, which uh, you get, obviously, the, the halls of Valhalla. Those were for the brave men and women who uh, died in battle. That was considered the greatest honour of all. And if you died of, of accidental causes or you know, died an ignoble death, like just dying peacefully in your bed or whatever, then you would go to Helheim. So hell, hell. It's spelled H-E-L rather than double L. But what's interesting is it's not fire and brimstone. There's another whole realm of Mudspelheim, which is all about fire, okay? Um, I could go on about the different realms. I'm not going to go there. But but what I find interesting is, well, think about where these people live. They put, live in places like Norway and Sweden and Denmark. So what would be the worst form of eternity? It certainly wouldn't be to burn to death. Of course, they spent their entire lives trying to remain warm. So I guess sitting in a fire pit for the rest of eternity is kind of, well, this is easy. I get to stay warm for the rest of eternity. No, of course, when you think about it, their idea of hell was a frozen wasteland. It was, in essence, the Arctic Circle. What could be worse than something like that? And let's face it, when you live in such harsh conditions and in the winters there would be time, you would see the northern lights, of course. And that would be clearly the gateway from one world to another. You know, even today we know that it may, we know what it is, but it doesn't stop it being any less magical when people see it in the modern world. So, yeah, it's really interesting how you've got all these different ideas flowing around and still seeping into 21st century either secular or Christian society. It's still out there. But now I'm going to talk about how Thor could technically sue Marvel, if he existed, obviously. And I want to be quite clear about this one. I, I love fem strong female characters. They, they don't have to be superheroes. You get Scarlet O'Hara in, in Gone with the Wind, okay? You know, there's just loads of great female characters. There aren't enough of them, okay? And I'm not one of these people who think that, oh, you know, strong women are hijacking men or whatever, not at all. And I'm saying all this right now because I, I, I want to put a, a caveat here because what you if I didn't say that, you're going to think what I'm about to say is awful, okay? But the, the, the thing is this, I'm a bit cross with Marvel because what they've done is the old Thor, the, if you like, the Chris Hemsworth type Thor in the comic books, he doesn't exist anymore. It hadn't done for a while. But he's come back as a woman. Now, this is not... Thor girl or Thoress or anything like this. Thor is now a woman. Why is Jem hot under the collar about this? Because in a way, well, this is the thing. Thor is owned by Marvel in the sense of all the stuff to do with Avengers and all the made up stuff there. Okay. 
but they certainly didn't come up with the idea. If they want to turn around and say, look, Spider-Man isn't Peter Parker anymore, it's now Penny Parker, and, you know, it's... It's just, it's Spider-Person or something like that. Great, wonderful. I mean, there are there is actually Spider-Woman and all this kind of stuff. There's Batgirl, if we go into DC, etc. There are lots of female echoes of male people. Though, interestingly, there is no male Wonder Woman. Just, she is just Wonder Woman. That, that's brilliant. But my thing is they own, my, my point is this, is they own those IPs, those intellectual property rights, okay? Marvel just took the idea of Thor and then has sort of mucked around with it. And it's like, you're not showing it much respect. This was a person who was prayed to. And, you know, clearly this isn't a perfect example, but would you throw Jesus into the sort of pantheon of, of Marvel superheroes and then when comic books of Jesus the superhero weren't selling so well, you then turn him into a, a woman? You know, if, if you're sitting there going, well, that, that's all kinds of awful... Well, yeah, and I think that, you know, clearly we don't, we shouldn't give Thor the same level of respect as an active faith today, but I think that it's a little bit cheeky that you're rebranding and re-altering something that was a, a real, genuine religion back in the past. So, yes, the, the thing is, what people forget, and, and this, so I said... There are the two problems with the Scandinavian societies. They're illiterate, so we tend to think they're stupid. They're not stupid. They just explored their stories in a different way. It was a verbal telling. It was a performance rather than a literature movement, okay? And yes, the other side is just because they're pagan, they're not actually irrelevant or sort of like uh, only putting half the effort into their ceremonies and, and rituals etc you know for example there was a, a an arab traveler who went all the way to scandinavia and managed to witness uh, a funeral rite of uh, a great pagan chieftain and he was put on a ship and it was set far on as one of these fire ships but interestingly they threw live slave girls onto it so that you know he would have these slave girls in the afterlife now clearly that's horrible and barbaric but it was genuinely what they believed and thought and a huge amount of effort had been put into this goodbye this funerary ritual of the dead i'll give you another gory example so 865 is when the Vikings went from... So, so okay, so a few dates to throw at you. In 793, we get the first naming of the attack of the Vikings at Lindisfarne, Holy Island, 793. They attack the monastery there, and through great rapine and slaughter, they basically trash the place and take all the good stuff, like the communal wine and the gold, okay? So from 793 to 865, the Vikings keep popping up every now and then in like, you know, 10 ships, 20 ships. You know, it's, it's not an entire armada. And they pillage. And then they run away again. And it was only in 865 that you get an, a huge host turning up. They'd spent generations raiding England. And now it was a chance to conquer England. Now, there was no actual country called England at that time. It was lots of Anglo-Saxon... Uh, uh, 
countries, kingdoms. You had Northumbria in the north, you had East Anglia in the east, you had Wessex in the south, you had Mercia in the middle. That's the basic layout. People can start arguing about exactly what was around in 865 if you're an Anglo-Saxon uh, expert on these things and you knock yourself out. Okay, fine. But that's that broad speaking. So there are at least four different kingdoms knocking around at that time. And the first one to get hit was East Anglia because, hey, it's the one closest, if you like it, to the sea, as it were. And the Viking horde attacked. Um, and the last king of East Anglia was, uh, was Edmund. And he fought them in battle and he lost and he was captured. And Edmund was then given the right of the Blood Eagle. The Vikings felt that they had been blessed, that they had fought a pitch battle. And it's worth remembering, the Vikings weren't, you know, huge amounts of soldiers. They didn't tend to fight lots of pitch battles. You know, they'd spent generations doing hit-and-run raids. They, as soon as the main army would turn up, they would run away. What's the point of having a huge fight? So it was a risky thing to do. It was a risky project to take over a country rather than just sort of do more hit-and-run raids. So... In honour of this, they wanted to give a sacrifice to their gods. And so they carried out the Rite of the Blood Eagle on, uh, on Edmund. And so what, they, uh, what that is, and if you're particularly squeamish, you might want to fast forward 30 seconds. So what they do is they rip open his uh, ribcage, they tied him down onto the side of a hill, ripped open his ribcage, they took out his lungs and made those, placed those next to him, made them like the body of an eagle, and then took out his rib cage and put out the ribs around it like the wings of an eagle, hence, hence right of a blood eagle. Again, quite a lot of effort and a sign that they once again took their religion seriously. So they might have had a very different religion to Christianity, um, but they took it seriously. So, so yeah, so Thor was an incredibly important figure who had been around for so long that we decided to name a day after him and fast forwarding a thousand years we're still using that name every single week and what's interesting is as christianity started to sort of progress through the lands of the norsemen you have the the image of thor as a great warrior is accurate you know so if you like the generally the image of thor in the movies isn't that would be understood if you like by a thousand year old scandinavian they would get that they would understand that and indeed he had a hammer called mjolnir which he wielded and could like cause all kinds of damage to the giants and things like that oh that was another realm one of the nine realms was one of the realms of the giants jotunheim uh, so, so yeah, like I said, I'm really not going to go through all nine, but I've already mentioned about six. Anyway, um, so uh, you, you've you got uh, Mjolnir there and, you know, he sort of like he would have been garbed in sort of like robes and in armor and in furs as well. So, you know, he kind of Chris Hemsworth looks the, the thing and, and therefore his hammer was the symbol. You know, every religion kind of has a symbol. You have the Star of David for Jews. You have the cross for Christians, etc. Okay, and indeed, there are loads of Scandinavian hammer symbols, which is clearly a reference to Thor. But there was one, and I love this. There was one cheeky. We we well, at least we know there's at least one uh, cheeky uh, jeweler who created a a a hammer of Thor. But if you think about a hammer symbol, it's not far off a cross. 
And it seems that you could latch this onto like a, a necklace or maybe just a leather cord and you could latch it sort of upside down. So you've got the handle closest to your neck and that would be the symbol of Thor. Or you could latch it on the other way round. So the hammer was up and it had a little notch above the hammer, like the little bit of wood that goes through the hammer. So it looked like a cross. But of course, it was a cross with sort of Scandinavian slash Anglo-Saxon site, all those sort of swirling symbols and things like that. So it would have been a cross that perhaps wouldn't have been familiar to the Pope of the time, but it would have fitted in culturally. It would have made people feel comfortable in places like Scandinavia. So, yeah, you know, you've even got Thor's hammer now being incorporated into Christian iconography. So it's fascinating how much of this in theory, forgotten God, is still hanging around today. And I am going to very briefly sort of like jump back to, to Christmas again, because you've got the image of sort of Father Christmas, Santa Claus, call it what you want. Yes, Saint Nicholas was genuinely a man in modern day Turkey who seems to have paid for poor women's dowries, and he was an early Christian, okay? Didn't live anywhere near the North Pole, okay? So where's this guy with a beard sort of like riding a sled in the snow, etc.? It's Odin. Odin was a symbol of winter. Of course, he had one eye, so we don't tend to see the eye patch on Santa. And also, he was a fearsome god. You know, Odin turning up was not necessarily a good thing. He certainly knew when you were naughty and he certainly knew when you were nice, okay? So let's, uh, let's, let's not go there. But, you know, you get all this Germanic and semi-pagan iconography creeping into the Christian period, uh, or Christian idea of Christmas. And uh, just one last thing to sort of show you another connection there. I, I know lots of people know this, but mistletoe uh, was quite often a symbol of fertility and, and to paganism. We all know that Christians get a little bit sort of sweaty under the collar about fertility and things like that. Far less of far less uh, nervousness in, in pagan. Uh, and also using the term pagan does somewhat imply everybody believe the same thing, like Christian or Muslim or something like that. But of course, it's just a description. It's a very biased description in Western terms saying they're not Christian. Or, you know, nowadays we know it to mean none of the major religions. But let's be honest for a moment. Something like um, the ancient Egyptian gods and myths, they were quite different to the um, the Scandinavian stuff going on as well. So although because they've got they both have the pantheon of gods, they're not going to get into a huge fight about it. That really is linked to Christianity. You know the the idea of sort of like fighting for my uh, for my religion and you we were not allowed to share. It did technically start with the Jews versus the Romans. That's a whole other story. But uh, yeah, um, they they wouldn't have understood each other's stories. They wouldn't be familiar to each other, but they would be cool with them, as it were, because it's like, hey, yeah, yeah. There's no there's no one god. There's loads of gods. And okay, you call that one blah. Turns out it's a little bit like this one over here, and we call it blah. So anyway, so it, it does show you that you know there's no such thing if if you like as a pagan i'm talking about scandinavian pre-christian civilization and uh, the religion that they followed but but thor and odin have done a remarkable job of lasting and pushing their influence out into the christian world and are now big box office draws how weird is that so 
That's where I'm going to stop with the Thor. And what I wanted to say is, please, please do. If, if you like this podcast, do uh, sub- subscribe. That's really important. Do like us. Give us a five-star review. Please, please. Thank you very much. It all helps to spread the word. If you've got some money in your pocket, it would be great if you could go on to Patreon. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash Neon Podcast. Just a dollar a month would make all the difference. Thank you in advance for that. And if you if you got no money, uh, don't worry about it. Like I said, you can always, first of all, review this podcast. But you can also... Uh, follow us on at Neon Podcast uh, on Twitter or just Neon Podcast on Facebook. Um, but please do spread the word. It's really impressive how quickly Neon's been growing, but we can only do it with you and your help. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.